Right, I invite you to take the bulletin, and we're going to read the scriptures together. Uh, if you would join me as we read uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and 14, 16 to 18, and then John chapter 2. So uh, let's read together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks for reading together. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, I pray now as we listen to your word being preached, just as we have just read it together, I, I pray that you would empower this by your Holy Spirit. God, would you help us to understand what you've said? And would you help us to understand, not just with our minds, we need your help there. Lord, I pray that our, our hearts, our souls would get this and would love this, that we would find ourselves rejoicing and experiencing what we should because of an encounter with your truth. Be with us now, Lord, I pray. Amen. One of the things that I enjoy doing when I travel or even when I just am at the office for a full day is FaceTiming my family when I have a break. And I'm glad that I get to be a dad in this time in history when I can do that. When I don't just have to hear their voices but can actually see their faces. I know many of you have experienced taking advantage of that and experience that. It's so much better than a phone call. But as, as good as it is, it's still not the same as actually being there. Seeing their face on my screen is, is awesome. But the shortcomings are pretty evident when uh, we go to draw the conversation to a close and, and my very affectionate daughter wants to give me a hug. And so she grabs the iPad 
in all of its cold steel and aluminum and gives it a big hug. It's pretty cute, but all I see is just this huge ear, you know? And then sometimes her nose will hit the, the end button and then we're done. You can't hug over FaceTime. And it just goes to show, as, as wonderful as it is to communicate, as wonderful as it is to even communicate face-to-face, -face, nothing, nothing replaces actually being there. And that's true in our lives, and that's certainly true in the story of the Bible. So if you're joining us, I know this is a unique Sunday, and that many of, many of our fam, church family is away, and many visiting family is here with us. And so if you're, if you're with us for the first time in a while, we, we are on a big journey that we started back in September through the, the whole storyline of the Bible called You Are Here, finding, your, finding Our Place in the Biggest Story Ever Told. And we're seeing three things. First of all, that the Bible is one story. Second, that, that Jesus Christ is the main character of the story. And then the third thing is, is exploring our place in that story. And so uh, we're just one more week away from concluding this, this middle part of the, of, the, of the series, which is exploring all the ways in which Jesus Christ fulfills the story. Jesus Christ is the main character of the story. And then beginning in January, we're going to be, going to be digging into what does this mean for us and our spot in this story today. But as we've seen up till now, as, as, as this whole story has, has been unfolding before our eyes, uh, one of the themes that's been woven throughout all of this is God's presence with his people. God, God being with his people. You'll remember in the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve for, for relationship with himself. He was with them in the garden. He would come and walk with them in the cool of the day. Genesis 3.8 talks about that. And so then when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they lost that. They were sent away from the garden. They, they were cast out of the presence of God. Adam and Eve experienced exile. That's what that is, being sent away from where they belonged, away from the presence of God. And from that point forward, each time in the story that God steps in to redeem, to save, to make a covenant, his presence, his being there is, is such a major part of that. And one of the best examples of this is the exodus from Egypt, when God saved his people Israel and, and brought them out of Egypt with the ten plagues. As God brought his people out of Egypt, he was with them in the pillar of fire, and the pillar of cloud. His presence was, was manifest. And one of the first priorities after he brought them to Mount Sinai and made this covenant with them, one of his first priorities was that they build a tabernacle where, where his presence would be manifest. In, that, in the tabernacle, that was the way that God was going to dwell among his people, that he was going to be with them. So he, he explained this to Moses in Exodus 29, 45. He said, I will dwell. And by, by the way, this is right in the section where he's, he's, he's describing the building of the tabernacle. And he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out, out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. Right? Why did God bring them up out of the land of Egypt? So that he could dwell among them. And he said this later on in Leviticus 26. He said, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you. And will be your God and you shall be my people. Did you catch that phrase? I will walk among you. It's the very same word that's used in Genesis 3.8 to describe God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. And he's going to do it again now with Israel using the tabernacle. 
Right? So the tabernacle is, is the way in which God brought his people a step closer to Eden. And, and, and we see this actually, we, again, this is, we've talked about this in the past, but when you actually look at the construction of the tabernacle, there's these parallels to, to the Garden of Eden, the, the, the cherubim guarding the presence of God, the, the, the lampstand that would have represented the tree of life and the way it faced the entrance faced east. And there's all kinds of parallels there that theologians recognize that the tabernacle that God had Israel built was really a mini Garden of Eden. And it was the place where God once again walked with his people. And as, as, as Israel's history went on, the tabernacle was really the centerpiece of their life as a nation, right? So what, what holds a nation together? What was the, the, the glue, the, 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 the center of the wheel for, for their life? It was the tabernacle. So as the people went into the promised land and settled, and, 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 and moved into all their homes in this land, three times a year, God commanded them to come and appear before the Lord God, which meant going up to the tabernacle where God's presence was, and they would celebrate a festival there. Three times a year, they had to leave all their work and go to have these festivals and appear before God. So if you wanted to appear before God, that meant going to the tabernacle. When we turn to the book of Psalms, we've touched on some of this in recent weeks, so some of this is, is review, but when we look at the book of Psalms, we see that the people who loved God had this longing to go be with God, to be in his presence there in the courts of the tabernacle, and then later it became the temple, right? The temple replaced the tabernacle, but essentially had the same function. It was just a permanent structure. And so those who loved God wanted to be there with him in that place. So Psalm 84, you've probably heard these words before. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. What's that talking about? It's talking about the temple. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. That's talking again about the temple. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Right? The people who loved God wanted to be there with God at the temple. Psalm 42 is, and Psalm 43 are, are, are laments written by someone who couldn't get to the temple. And they were just desperate to get there, to be with God. So Psalm 42 says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Right? We've sung that before, as the deer pants. For, but what are they actually talking about? He says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Do you hear those three words? Same three words that God used back in, in Exodus to talk about coming to the tabernacle. And as, as the psalm goes on, it's very clear that what the psalmist is longing for, as he's longing for God, he's longing to go be with God at the temple. So Psalm 43, which is really kind of part two, the psalmist says this, is, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. It's Mount Zion where the temple was. And to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, right? The altar at the temple. To God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. Oh God, my God. Right? So you see there that desire to be with God at the temple. There's a whole collection of, of 15 psalms starting in, in Psalm 120 that are called the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms that the people would sing as they went up to Jerusalem on these three times a year journeys to go be with God. So I highlight this because this is something I think we Christians living today often miss is that in the Old Covenant, 
the people's relationship with God was directly connected with their ability to go be with God in the temple, to appear before God, to be near God. It was all mediated through that building. They had to get to a spot to be near God. And so when the people were finally exiled, right? When they, when they, when they were sent away in, into exile in Babylon and the temple was destroyed, do you see what, what really the, the tragedy of that was? The sharp edge of that sword of exile was this experience of losing access to the presence of God. They couldn't get near God anymore. Where, where was God? They, they couldn't get there. And so that's why, for example, when Daniel prays, right? Daniel, one of the exiles, when he prays, where does he open his windows and pray towards? Jerusalem, right? Because that's, that's where the presence of God is going to be. And, and he prayed towards Jerusalem. And, and, and the great hope of the exiles was that God was going to bring them out of these foreign lands. And he was going to bring them back to a new temple in Jerusalem so that they could be near God again. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about this return from exile. And it's really interesting. If you read through Isaiah, especially like starting in chapter 40 onwards, it's full of, of references that compare this return from exile, going back to Jerusalem, it compares it to the exodus from Egypt. Just like God led his people out of Egypt that first time in order to dwell among them, so he was promising that a second time he was going to lead them out of the land of captivity. Except this time it wasn't Egypt, it was Babylon. He was going to lead them out of Babylon and bring them to himself again so that he could dwell among them again. And so after 70 years of exile passed, we read in Ezra chapter 1 how Cyrus, king of Persia, made a decree that allowed the Jews to go back to their land and do what? What's the first thing that the Jews got to do when they got to go back to their land? rebuild the temple. Of course, right? Because that, that's what this is all about. Not, it's not just getting back to their homes. It was getting back so they could build a temple so they could be near God again. Just like the exodus from Egypt, right? Went into the desert, built the tabernacle. So the second time, they leave Babylon and they build a temple. But something was different the second time. If you read in the book of Ezra, don't turn there, but if you make a note, if you want to look at this later, Ezra chapter 6 talks about when this second temple was finished, right? So after they've left Babylon or Persia and they've come back to their land, they build the second temple, they finish it, and they had a big celebration, and that was it. You say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, it sounds normal, but it's not, right? Do you remember if you read the, the first tabernacle, when the tabernacle was completed, what happened? God's glory came and filled it, right? God filled the tabernacle with this cloud of his glory to show them that he was there with them. And the same thing happened when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem. God's glory filled it like a cloud. So the priest couldn't even go into it. God was showing them, I'm here with you in this building. And when the second temple after the exile was finished, nothing, no glory. 
It just was a building. That's it. And this confirms our suspicions, right? We put this together with some other pieces in the story that show us that the people had returned to Jerusalem, but God hadn't returned with them. God's presence wasn't with his people in the way that it had been before. And this is one of the pieces that causes us to see that even though the people had re- many of the people had returned to their own land, they were still in exile. Right? They were still without the presence of God. The people were still waiting for God to be with them. And there's, you read, because the, this went on for hundreds of years, and you read the, the writings of, of the Jews, and, and, and they recognize this. They recognize, yeah, we're, we're living in Jerusalem, but you know what? We're still in exile. Where is God? So can you imagine, can you imagine the excitement in the hearts of the people when centuries later, a wild-haired prophet named John the Baptist begins baptizing people. That's where he got his name. And calling people to repent out in the desert in Judea. And the religious leaders come to him and they say, who are you? And he said, John 1.23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now here's what's so important to get about this that we might miss this. John is quoting the prophet Isaiah from one of Isaiah's prophecies about the second exodus. When God was going to bring his people to himself and God was going to come back to his people and be with them again. And John says, it's happening now. It didn't happen when you left Babylon. That's not when when the exile ended. But John is saying, the exile is about to end. I'm the messenger announcing the coming of God. God is coming to be with his people, finally, once more. That's what John the Baptist was saying. What John may or may not have known was that God already had come to be with his people about 30 years earlier. That God was already there in a way that was more real and more precious than anyone would have dared to guess. Could John himself even have fully grasped that God was already there with his people walking among them as one of them. The clues were there all around, all along. Right? Isaiah's prophecies again said, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, Isaiah told us that to us a child is born and that this child shall be called mighty God. And so it was that when God finally returned to be with his people again, God didn't come in cloud or smoke or thunder or fire. God came as a baby. I love how the Gospel of John describes this to us in the passage that we just read together a few minutes ago. John introduces us 
to the word who is with God, the word who is God, the one through whom all things are created, the second person of the Trinity. And then verse 14 tells us this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just think about that word flesh for a little bit. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a striking, it's an arresting word, right? Like flesh. It's kind of gross if you think about it. It's the word that's connected to the word for meat and muscle. And that's what it's getting at, though. And I hope you'll remember, if, if you were here with us, as we went through 1 John in the summer, that this would have just been just mind-boggling to so many of John's readers, right? Because they thought that these bodies, this, this skin and meat and bones, was something we wanted to get rid of, right? They thought that the body is bad. They were looking forward to the, when they would die, and all that would be left was their soul without a body. That was, that was where they wanted to be. And yet here we read that this divine word, the light and life of men, became flesh. He took on a body. He became an embryo. And then a fetus. And then he was born. It's just amazing. And then what does verse 14 go on to say? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I just love this. This word here that's used for dwell is so rich. Verse 14. And I don't often do this where I'll talk about the meaning of the original Greek word. Right? The New Testament was written in Greek. I think you know that. And most of the time, if you want to know what a Greek word means, it's pretty much what a good translation like the ESV says. Right? But every once in a while, there's, there's something deeper and something richer. And this is one. You can go home and look this up. If I'm not making this up. But the, the word that's used here for dwell in verse 14 is a word that literally means pitched his tent. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Do you get what that's pointing to? It's pointing to the tabernacle. That's why some people say we should translate this. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In the old covenant, God walked among his people in the tabernacle. And now God walked among his people in the tabernacle of the body of Jesus. So do you see now why we're calling this morning's message, what we're calling it, Jesus, our temple. In the old covenant, God met with his people in a building. And in this new covenant, God meets with his people in a person. Jesus, our temple. This is the way that God dwells with his people. And this is what's going on in those words that we read from John chapter 2. Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, what are you talking about? How can you do that? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 21. Jesus' body 
is the new and the true temple. Jesus' body is the place where God's presence really is, where God dwells with his people. And we could see this all throughout Jesus' ministry. He made reference to this, and we just see it acted out that that it's in Jesus, not through a building in Jerusalem, but it's in the person, the body of Jesus, that God's people meet with him, and they experience God's presence, and they experience God's grace. This shows up in ways that that are surprising to us. So this, this is one I just read recently that just surprised me. You're familiar, many of you are going to be familiar with the story of the, of the man who was paralyzed and Jesus was in a, in a house that was crowded and, and his, they couldn't get to him. So his friends went up on the roof and dug a hole in the roof and lowered this guy down on ropes, right? You've probably, many of you have heard that story before. And as he comes down eye level, I just would love to see this acted out, you know, how, how did that guy feel, you know, just kind of hanging out literally. But as he comes down, Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And we read that some of the scribes were sitting there. This is from Mark chapter 2. They were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. And what do they say? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now that much we understand, right? That Jesus was doing something that only God can do, forgive sins. But there's, a, there's an added layer to this that, that, that the Jewish people would have understood. Where did God forgive sins? Where would you go in the old covenant if you needed to be forgiven of your sins? The temple. That's where forgiveness took place, right? That, that, the priest sacrificing the animals is how you got forgiven. You want to be forgiven for your sins? You go to the temple, And yet here, in this crowded house, miles away from Jerusalem, Jesus does something that could only happen at the temple. He says, your sins are forgiven. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the true temple. I can forgive sins wherever I am. I don't have to take you to Jerusalem. I can forgive sins right here. I am the true temple. So I hope you can see how rich this is, what we've seen so far, that Jesus in his body is the temple where God dwells and walks with his people. But I hope you also see how disappointing this would be if this is where the story ended, if this was it. If Jesus' body replaced the temple, but nothing else happened, you and I today, would we'd still be in a tough spot, right? Because if we wanted to be near God, What would we have to do? We'd still have to go find Jesus. We'd have to go travel. We'd need to go be in a physical location with a person. And now that Jesus has ascended to heaven, are we in any better spot than they were back when there was no temple? Do you see what I'm saying? There's got to be more that happens for this to be really good news. More than just God incarnate. And there is more. This wasn't the end of the story. Jesus told us while he was on earth that he was going to do something that was going to allow us to access God's presence in a way that was greater than than we could have imagined. So we hear about this in John chapter 4, the conversation with the woman at the well. And in verse 19, he's talking to the woman at the well. 
And she's trying to derail him because he's convicting her of sin in her own life. And she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So do you see what she's, so she's a Samaritan. And this is one of the issues between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews said, we should worship at the Jerusalem temple. That's where God, that's the place where God wants us to go up here before God. So again, you see this whole idea that there's a location you had to be in. And the Samaritans said, no, we worship here. This mountain in Samaria, this is the spot we go to, to worship God. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. Did you get what Jesus is saying? In the scope of the whole big story of the Bible, Jesus is saying the time is coming where it's not going to matter where you are. You can worship God anywhere. You won't have to be in a certain spot. That hour is coming. And let's try to understand something here as we, as we lean in to see how this actually happened. Why is it that God's location was kept in a specific spot? And you, you could, could, had to go there. It was guarded, protected, only one spot. The answer is that God is holy and we are not. And that if God's presence, if we were to encounter God's presence, we would die. That's what we see in Mount Sinai. That's what we see many times throughout the Old Covenant is that when God's presence is just out there and we encounter it, we die. We're consumed by the holiness of God. And so the only way that we can really encounter the presence of God fully and freely is if that problem, our sin, is dealt with. Like we've seen again, this problem, our sin, the problem in the story over and over again. And so this hour that Jesus talked about, where it wouldn't matter anymore where we were, it came when he died on the cross to make us holy. Jesus took our place 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Do you see that? He died on the cross to bring us to God, to bring us into the presence of God. He died to make us holy so that we could experience God. He took our place. He paid for our sins. And here's the amazing thing. Do you remember as Jesus died what he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see what's happening there? Jesus was cut off from the presence of God. Jesus was suffering Exile. Spiritual exile. 
the punishment for our sins, being cast away from the presence of God. Jesus experienced that for us so that we would never need to ever again. He died to give us access to the presence of God. And so that's why when Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, what happened? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you get it? Do you see now the symbolism of what's happening there? This curtain that kept God's presence locked away from anyone else. Only a priest could go in once a year. When Jesus died, that curtain was ripped in half. It was like God saying, I don't need this anymore. Now God's people can encounter him and experience his presence wherever we are, whenever we are, because Jesus has made us holy and righteous in him. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. And so now I'm going to read these words again from Hebrews 10. I read them a couple weeks ago, but I think we might hear them a little bit different now with some of these truths in our minds. Hebrews 10, talking about the death of Christ for us. And it says this, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter where? The holy places. That's talking about the, the, the temple, that inner holy place in the temple. And it's saying, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you hear what it's saying? This is just mind-blowing in the, in, in, the, in the whole story of the Bible. If we understand how it all led up to this, that you and I, because of the death of Jesus, wherever we are, whenever, have access to the holy places that we can enter in and have direct access to God the Father without worried about being burnt up and killed. This is so rich, but it's also, my guess is, at this spot, easy for us to get confused. Because maybe you're listening and you're thinking, the holy of the holy places, I have access to that through Jesus? Like, what does that actually mean? Like, I don't know if I've ever experienced that. Have I ever entered the holy places? Like, what is this talking about? Am I missing out on something? I've spent some time in the past going to churches that thought that this was describing an experience that we would have, a, a mystical experience. The whole church service was just one big hyped up journey where we would, we would try to kind of get to this experience where it felt like we had experienced the presence of God. And if we felt the right things, if we had a, a hyped up enough experience, well then, yeah, we experienced the presence of God. But, but if not, well, we, we would just try again next week. It would use music and smoke and lights to try, to try to make us feel like we had entered into God's presence. 
But friends, please listen to this. What this is describing, this access to the Father, this access to God's presence through Jesus, we have experienced that here this morning. It happened, for example, when we prayed. Just think about that. Just think about the prayer time that we had. You and me, insignificant, tiny little people, approached in our spirits, we approached the God of creation and we confessed our sin to him. We asked God to forgive us. We told him about some things that we would like him to do for us and we asked him to do those things for us. Do you know how amazing that we get to do that in Nipawin? See, maybe we're so used to it, right? We're, just, we're so used to this that we don't realize how amazing this is. We didn't have to get on a plane and fly to the Middle East to go into a stone building to receive God's forgiveness. We just got to talk to God together in Nipawin. This is amazing. It doesn't feel amazing because we're just used to it. But this is what we get to experience as God's people all the time. If the Old Testament saints would have just been lining up to trade places with you. If they knew, you just get to do that? Really? You just come together in a building and talk to God? And... But there's more than even this, right? Because God is actually with us today through his spirit. And this is what Jesus, another thing Jesus opened up for us was the presence of God with us through his Holy Spirit. So just think about this morning, your experience here in the service so far. Maybe just think about your week. Have you, have you experienced the conviction of sin? Where you've kind of felt a pinch that you've done something wrong and you need to make it right. Have you experienced seeing the truth about Jesus in his word? Have you experienced a sense that God loves me? Even right now, as I'm preaching the word, are you understanding this? And is it resonating in your heart? And are, is this causing you to, to, to treasure Jesus more? All these things that I've just described to you, these are the things that are the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what the scriptures tell us. These are the things that the Holy Spirit, God with us, this is what he does. Have you felt strength to do something hard? Courage to go do something you didn't think you could do? And he was there helping you. Wisdom to, to, to make a decision you didn't know how to make. These are all things the Holy Spirit does for us. God with us in his Holy Spirit. And this happened because of the death of Jesus. So here, let's put this together, right? Both us approaching God in prayer and in our, the way that we worship him together. And then God being with us through his Holy Spirit. These are just things that are part of the normal Christian life, right? Reading the Bible, understanding it, praying, receiving forgiveness, experiencing joy, experiencing joy together in fellowship, all these things, the normal Christian life, but it's all empowered by the presence of God. And so it's anything but normal. Like I said before, the Old Testament saints would have lined up by the dozens to trade places with you if they got to know what you really experienced. There's two more stops we're going to make this morning because there's one, one let's make that first stop because we're going to pause again and ask some more questions. 
everything that I've just said, even if you're saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, I get that, it's true. Isn't there a sense in your heart though that as wonderful as this is, we want more? I do. I long for a closer experience of the presence of God. I know how much I already have, but I know that there's a lot that I don't yet have. And when we turn to the back of the book, in the book of Revelation, what we see is that the way this story finishes up is with the presence of God, with God being with us in person here on earth, fully and finally forever. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And it goes on to say there's no temple in that city because God himself is there. I don't know what you, those words stir up longing in my heart. I want that. I want to be with God. And that's how the story ends. That's what we have to look forward to. The baby in the manger was just a down payment on this reality. Living with God forever. Now, our second, last stop. Let me say that again. We're going to make our last stop here for this morning by asking, what does this mean for us today as we head out into our week? What do we do with this ourselves? So I hope you've heard one thing already, which is that we need to appreciate and recognize and be thankful for all the ways that God is with us, all the ways that Jesus is our temple today, that we approach God through Jesus, not through a building, but through a person, that we can approach God in prayer, we can experience his grace like we have together here. We gotta take full advantage of that, be thankful for the Holy Spirit, draw near to God, all those things are true. But there's one more piece, like I said, one more stop in this whole picture, which is something that is just astounding, which is this. We are also God's temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And that, those are both, when it says you, that's a plural you. It's like y'all. It's talking to a, the church, all of us. We, as a church, are God's temple because God's spirit dwells in us. So we're just going to end this morning by thinking about what some, of the, what some of this means for us, especially when we compare it to Jesus as our temple when he took on flesh and became a baby. If we as a church are the temple of God, that means that we have a responsibility to represent God in this world. That when people encounter us, they should be encountering God. And what it means is that Christmas, when when Jesus took on flesh, it's not just some event we get to look back on and say, yay, that happened in the past. Isn't it wonderful? 
No, it's a mission that is still ongoing today. Because when Jesus ascended to heaven, that baton of being the temple, being the embodiment of the presence of God, he handed it off to who? Us. He says, as the Father sent me, he prayed this to the Father in John 17, but he says, as the Father sent him into the world, so he has sent his followers out into the world. The mission of embodying the presence of God, of representing God in this world, of being the person, the people, where people encounter God, Jesus gave his church that mission. And so when we celebrate Christmas and we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, that reminds us that we have a responsibility to embody God's presence in our world. It kind of changes things a little bit, doesn't it? it? It makes us look at Jesus as an example for us to follow. And this week, perhaps, you're going to have experiences, where you, opportunities where you're going to get to, to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. Maybe this week, Christmas, you're not looking forward to it. Maybe, maybe your Christmas is not going to look like a Norman Rockwell painting. Maybe you're tempted to feel sad about that. Maybe this Christmas you're going to need to spend some time with some family members that you're not really looking forward to having to spend time with. Maybe you're struggling with that. What would change if we were to remember Christ? If we were to remember the mission that Jesus had and the mission that he gives us of embodying the presence of God. That we go into all those uncomfortable situations representing God. Maybe you are just looking forward to a good time with your family this week. But what might change even there for the better if you were to embrace the mind of Christ? Might mean inviting some people to come and celebrate Christmas with you. People who might be lonely otherwise. Because right? that's what Jesus did. He spent his first Christmas away from home with strangers. Which means that celebrating Christmas is just a perfect opportunity to show hospitality and generosity. These are just some, some sketches, but here, here's what I'm getting at. Jesus came into this world to embody the presence of God. And of course, Jesus did that in a unique way. There's ways that he did that we never will. But there's other ways in which he calls us to do the same, to represent the presence of God in this world. And if we just go into our week with our eyes open, looking for ways to do this, we're going to see lots. Each time we pray, each time we open up our Bibles, each time we experience God's forgiveness, each time we draw near, we get to enjoy what Jesus opened up between us and the Father. And then we get to carry that out to other people as we represent God to them. And as we do that, we're looking forward to his return. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's help in figuring out what this looks like. And then we're going to sing in Christ alone 
together. Please don't forget, we're going to be back here tomorrow night, Christmas Eve. Take one of these on your way out. There's a pile of them on the little table when you walk in the door there. Stick them under in your neighbor's mailboxes, or better yet, hand them to them in person. We're going to sing a bunch of carols. We're going to just, just enjoy celebrating the arrival of, of Emmanuel. So looking forward to seeing many of you here tomorrow. Father, would you help us with all of this? This is a big story to take in. The story, God, of your presence with your people. The story of the temple. Jesus, thank you that you took the place of the temple. You became the temple, the place where God dwells with his people. You opened up the way for us to have a relationship with God that doesn't need a building. Help us, Jesus, to to be amazed by this. And then help us, Jesus, to realize that, that in a wonderful way, we are that temple today. We represent you in this world. Lord, you know what that means for each of us, even this very week. Would you help us to know what that means? And would you help us to embrace that with joy? The joy of representing you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.